This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live, and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to the Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. This week, we're going to talk about a subject near and dear to my heart, Scripture, sin, and defending Christianity. And what we're doing here is closing out uh, a three-part series that we began a few weeks ago on uh, creation and predation. And really, the issue at hand here is the fall of man and and sin. And we began talking about this. We looked at what the um, what what the fall means and what the fall looks like for the issues of creation and um, and in the fall and then the flood and then also um, in, in to in the restoration in the final restoration of man. You see, we believe that um, when the creation is restored. It is going to be restored to its perfect original order, God's very good or tov meod creation. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a perfect restoration one one day. God is is going to set the world right. Everything. Can you imagine? Everything today that is wrong with the world is going to be made right. But in what sense? How is it going to be made right? It's going to be made right because it will be made back into the conditions of the original creation before sin and death ever entered into the world. And where I would like for the conversation to go today is I really want to put a button on this issue that that we've been dealing with these past few weeks, I'd like to to kind of wrap it up here uh, this week, and I want to do that by looking at this concept of the fall in really the wider Christian context. I want to look at uh, three things specifically: scripture, sin, and defending Christianity. And as some of you know, as a Baptist preacher, sometimes I just cannot help uh, but to put these things into a three-point outline uh, and an alliterated three-point outline at that. So I, so I want to talk this morning about, about three things. First of all, I want to talk about the importance of the fall, and that's Scripture. That's the authority of Scripture. It is important, actually, uh, that we get the fall right for some very specific reasons, and, and we're going to look at those. And then secondly, we're going to take a look at the impact of the fall, and this deals with sin. We want to understand the the scope of the fall and what that means for our world. And then finally, we want to look at the implications of the fall, and specifically uh, when it comes to defending Christianity. The fall gives us our apologetic for the pain and, and death and suffering in the world. And if we don't have the story right, then the evangelism is built on a foundation, ultimately, of, of sinking sand. And we certainly don't want that. We want to proclaim God's word boldly. We want to share 
Christ boldly and unashamedly, but in order to do that, we're going to have to also share it accurately. And so those are just a few of the things we're going to be looking at today. I want to remind you, um, just before we get started, uh, as you heard in the very beginning in our new intro, um, the wait list for the Creation Academy is open. All right, so I want you to head on over there, uh, join in, get signed up, get signed up into the Facebook group, get signed in over to the Facebook group, and uh, and let's start talking about this thing. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, I'm in uh, the planning phases of how things are, 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 are going to turn out, and I'm really excited. I, I think that what we're going to be able to offer is some in-depth training on creationism. I think we're going to uh, be able to dive deeper because of the visual format and also the workbooks that's going to uh, that will be accompanying those lessons. Uh, I think we're going to be able to dive deeper into some important issues um, than we can here on the podcast, and we're also going to be able to do it in a way that's a little bit more structured, a little bit more curriculum based. Uh, the purpose of this podcast is is while I do call these lessons that, that we have, um, they, they don't really go by a particular curriculum or a, a particular lesson plan. Um, uh, I, sometimes I do series like the one we just did. Sometimes I do series that are based on a textbook like the Searching for Adam series we did. We're also going to do one, although it's going to be a little bit different um, than how we did Searching for Adam. Just I wanted to try something a little bit different for our next book series, uh, the way we did it. And so uh, we're going to be doing uh, one on Kurt Wise's book, um, Faith, Form, and Time. We're going to be working on that um, very soon. So we do have structure to some of our episode series uh, here and, and some of our lessons here, uh, but not in the way that we'll be able to, to do when the Creation Academy is really going. Uh, I, I've got a list down right now of, of general courses that I, that I want to be the first ones uh, to, uh, to be in play. And essentially, not to go into too much detail here, but, but, but essentially what we've got is the main categories of uh, the Academy the main categories of learning uh, that we're gonna that we're gonna have. I want to have kind of like an intro course in each one of those categories, and so that's what we're working on putting together now. Exactly what that course outline, that course structure is going to be like, and I've got most of it down. Um, I'm pretty sure how I'd like it, and so uh, honestly, uh, pretty soon I'll be to the point of going ahead and um, and putting that together. So uh, I'm excited about it. Looking forward to what God is going to do uh, with our ministry in the rest of this year. And of course, early 2019, uh, got a book I'm working on, hopefully to launch uh, early 2019 as well. So uh, we're, we're expecting the Lord to do good things. The main thing that we need from you is prayer. That's really it. Currently, uh, we, and we haven't really talked about this much, and I don't want to spend too much time on it here, but um, currently, our, our ministry, while we would happily accept donations, we have a Patreon account set up. You're welcome. I, I, would, I would love uh, for, for one of you to, um, to go look at our Patreon account and to see how you can contribute to our ministry there. Uh, I'm not against taking donations, uh, but right now, our ministry is not built on a donation model. Um, it, it's just not. If you get value from what we do, I would be happy to accept those donations. Currently, though, we are not a 501c3. Um, we, we, we don't offer any kind of tax incentive uh, for donating to our ministry. Uh, right now, we just offer everything that we have, uh, literally, uh, for free. No strings attached. And uh, so just... At, at, just being as honest with you as I can, we're going to start producing some products, some things that uh, if you want to support our ministry, um, we're going to offer some products that you can buy. For example, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is um, making some of the individual courses uh, that are going to be available in the Creation Academy. Uh, I might offer them separately as a separate product that if you just want to buy one product, uh, you could do that. Um I think it'll be a better deal <laughs> to just become a member of the Creation Academy, but um, I, I want to give multiple ways for folks to support us, so we, we're definitely going to be looking at um, building some more products soon. Uh, I'm not going to change anything about the way I deliver content here. Um, 
I'm going to give you the best stuff I've got here. I'm not holding anything back, but we're definitely going to produce some products that are that will be a little bit more structured, uh, a little bit different way of learning. And if that's something that suits you, uh, that'll be a way that you can support our ministry and uh, and you will get the benefits from that as well. Ultimately, what we want to do is just share this creation message. We want to let as many people know and make the information as accessible as possible, but Also, we want to do it in a way that gets people thinking very, very carefully about these issues. If there's one criticism that I think I have of uh, the majority, um, and I better be careful how I say this, but but if there's one criticism I have of of some other ministries who teach the same things that we teach as far as creationism goes, um, sometimes we're um, not—they don't go out of their way to— help those who consume their content be able to relate it in a way that's helpful, be able to think about it carefully for themselves. And really, in a way, that's what what we want to do. Uh, I, I am not a scientist. I've told you this. Um, I'm not even a researcher, a scientific researcher. I'm a writer, but I'm not a science writer. Um, I'm a preacher. All right. I'm not even a theologian. I wouldn't consider myself that, but I am a communicator. God has given me the ability to be able to read after other people and the passion to really enjoy this creation and apologetic stuff. And he's given me the ability to communicate it to others, to think carefully about it, and to help other people think carefully about it and communicate it to others. That's the kind of gift that God has given me. And so that's what I am trying my best to help you do. So if you notice, a lot of our conversations, while they are about science, a lot of our conversations are about how to carefully navigate these issues, whether we're talking about the science or the theology uh, or the philosophy. We want to get a holistic view of uh, of the world, especially as it relates to the creation. And we want to be able to share it with others in a compelling way, uh, but also in a way that is faithful to Scripture. And so that's what I want to help you to do. And uh, any products that we come out with, that's going to be with the goal that, that's in mind there. Uh, I'm always going to try to apply this information in such a way that you can use it in your daily walk. And really... That's a pretty good segue to where I want to go because that's what this uh, particular lesson is about. We spent the last two um, lessons talking about some technical information and even answering some more technical questions that arose out of what we originally talked about. But today I want to kind of apply it. I, I want to I take you from understanding the information to fitting it within the greater context of Christianity and then communicating it to others. And and, and possibly, if you turn off the podcast in, in, in two minutes, just hear me out here. What I want you to do more than anything, what I want you to get out of today, is I want you to be able to grasp the gravity that comes along with the biblical doctrine of the fall as it relates to our apologetic. In other words, as it relates to defending Christianity. If we lose the ability to um, call on the fall or to, uh, to, to, if we lose the ability to give context to our conversations about evil and pain and suffering and death, if we lose the fall, which is the foundational point where those issues begin to come into play, um, then we've lost it all. We've lost the story because the fall is part of the story. And I'm not talking about um, just a an allegorical fall. I'm not talking about a typological fall. I'm not talking about a fall where it doesn't fully encompass the depth of the uh, of the implications that it has on the creation. I'm talking about the fallout fall, what the Bible teaches about the fall. So let's look at a little bit of that this morning uh, before we finish up this series. All right, let's, let's look first of all then at the importance of the fall. And again, this is as it relates to Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And I wrote down this little question, uh, kind of rhetorically, and I wrote down my little answer to it as well. So, so uh, the question I wrote is this. How should we read the Bible? Now, let's think about this very carefully for a minute. How should we, how should we read the Bible? One of the things when I talk with unbelievers 
that they often trot out is uh, this argument about, well, how do you know that you have got the correct interpretation of that scripture? I don't think it's any secret at this point that I practice apologetics from a presuppositional kind of standpoint. That is, I uh, whereas some apologists would actually purposely try to stay away from scripture when talking about spiritual things with others, I'm the opposite. I, I, I want to go back to Scripture because the Scripture is the power of God. This is the revealed Word of God. The Bible says that we ought to let God be true and every man a liar. Uh, let's, let's stand on our sure foundation. If all knowledge, um, if all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, that's Colossians 2, 3, then how can we possibly expect to appeal to knowledge outside of that in order to prove that? That, to me, makes no sense. So um, I uh, am adamant about keeping Scripture at the forefront. Now, that, does that mean that all I do is quote Bible verses? Of course not. That, that's not what that means at all. Uh, and we'll talk maybe about that more in depth some other time. But back to this particular issue, how should we read the Bible, they say? Because, again, I'm not afraid of using the Bible in my conversations. Well, how do you know that you got that right? In other words, maybe even in, in this context, in the fall, well, how do you know that you are interpreting the fall right? Well, there's a couple things in play here. The first of all, uh, I believe that we should interpret the Bible with a historical grammatical hermeneutic. And the best justification for that, now look, we, we could list Hebrew scholars all day, we could we could go into that, that. we could look at uh, multiple things, uh, we could look at the Rate Project and the statistical analysis done by Dr. Greg Boyd, which I think was absolutely um, great, we're definitely going to talk about that sometime, but for all these technical things, do you realize that Scripture can be interpreted with Scripture? Now, maybe it's just the preacher in me that's kind of bringing out that line of reasoning here, but think about it. If Scripture is its best interpreter, then can't we just read Scripture? And do you think from reading Scripture we can get a understanding of how to read Scripture? I think we can, and if you're if you kind of understand where I'm going with this, it's easy to understand why. Now, you may have a little bit of a difficulty with the Quran, for example, and doing this, because the Quran was written by one person, and of course, if you've actually ever read different parts of it, you find that um, there are conflicting ideas, despite the fact that it was written by the same person. It was at a different cultural time period, a little bit different context um, and location that uh, Muhammad was in when he was writing this thing. But I want you to think about the Bible. The Bible is not just one book written by one person, other, of course, than the fact that the Holy Spirit was, you know, inspired the writers. Um, it's written by one person in the divine sense, but in the human sense, it was written by multiple authors. And so by Looking at a later author, of course, we realize that uh, even if we're just being brought here, the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament all the time, incessantly. Jesus does this. So it's very easy to see how to read the Bible, because all we have to do is look at how other people read the Bible. So when I see Jesus talking, for instance, about Noah's flood, or when I see Jesus talking, for instance, about Adam and Eve and the uh, relationship that they had to uh, even to him and even to um, others and to scripture as a whole and to the Christian story as a whole, we see how one writer might have taken another writer. We even see instances where in the Old Testament, uh, one verse might be actually talking about, two, and I forget the exact reference on this, I think it's Luke 19 maybe is where this is quoted, I just can't remember off the top of my head, but there's a particular verse in the Old Testament where um, basically the first half of the verse, and this might be in Zechariah, the first half of the verse is dealing with the first coming of Christ, and the second half of the verse is dealing with the second um, coming of Christ, and Christ references, he divides that verse in half, Christ talks about only the first coming in there and leaves off the part and says that it was fulfilled and leaves off the part about the second coming. So 
My point is that we can glean a little bit of information about how we ought to read the Bible simply by reading how the other Bible writers read the Bible. Because remember, these are different cultural time periods. These are different uh, locations. These are different contexts altogether that these different scriptures are being written in. And yet we see a consistent way of quoting and using scripture uh, from one writer to another, even crossing the covenants. So uh, that's how I believe we should read the Bible. I believe we should read the Bible as history, unless we've got some really, really good reason not to do so, uh, especially since Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers read the Bible that way. And the danger here to me is this danger of allegorization. It's whenever we don't like something in the Bible, we just turn it into an allegory. Is that right? That's what... Uh, that's what we do. That's what most of our uh, seminaries um, in America, especially, that's what we've done. If we don't like it, we just bring in professors who allegorize uh, that particular point of Scripture. Um, to me, this is not faithful to Scripture. Uh, people in this position seem to argue that they have a high view of Scripture. I just disagree. I don't think I don't think you can have a high view of Scripture and just allegorize away the parts that you don't like, all right? I, I don't take that view. So, um, and here's why. Here's why. Because where do you draw the line? This is the question. At what point is Noah's flood more reasonable, in other words, than a virgin birth? Can we just be honest here? You know, at, at, at what point is is uh, you know a, a, a talking snake? in the first chapters of the Bible, more or less reasonable than Jesus raising men from the dead. You see what I'm saying here? It's One is perhaps, perhaps easier to accept because it happens in a, in a, a locus of history that's a bit closer to us and admittedly shares at least some outside corroboration. But ultimately the point here that we have to realize is that these things are miraculous and there is no jump genesis 1 through 11 there is nothing in genesis 12 that certainly turns flips some kind of switch and says okay now we're in history mode right we see these miracles happening so far back into the bible and even the the writing of the bible itself and the design and the location of people being exactly where they need to be and everything lining up and abraham and his progeny and the way that the divine, the way that it is just lined up. And then, of course, we see um, genealogies that cross that line of Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12. Look, um, we're in a real danger here of drawing the line um, somewhere uh, where it's just imaginary. There's no reason to draw a line. I love the way Dr. Eugene Merrill worded this in the Searching for Adam book that we we did a series on. I'm going to quote that a couple times throughout here, but um, I, I love this quote from him. He says this, are the narratives of creation and the existence of a historical Adam any more difficult to believe and understand than the incarnation of God himself through the fragile vessel of a Jewish peasant teenager, an incarnation known to the inspired apostles as second Adam? Think about that for a minute. At what point do we draw the line? And that is the inherent danger of allegorization. That that and we can say that it is based on a cultural context. But I want you to hear this quote now from Dr. John Oswald because this is really interesting. Dr. Oswald uh, says this in his book, The Bible Among the Myths: If the historical basis on which the supposed resolution rested was false, then why should we give any special credence to the ideas resting on that basis? Uh, Thus began a sweeping shift away from any idea that biblical thought was unique, either in its origins or in its ultimate formulations. So if it was appropriate to describe any other religious system as myth, uh, there could be no reason to exclude the biblical religion from that terminology. It must be said that there have been no major new discoveries, either in the realm of myth or in the ancient Near East, that have caused this shift. To be sure, there uh, there continues to be an appeal to the ancient Near Eastern data we have, and there has been 
a great broadening of the definition of the term myth to make it possible to include the Bible in the category. But it is a change of assumptions that accounts for this shift, not new discoveries. And if you really grasp what he's saying there and just how profound that is. In other words, uh, since this major shift, which has happened basically since the 60s, um, in, the, in the way of looking at the, especially the early chapters of the Bible in their ancient Near Eastern um, context, you realize that new discoveries, new data, this has not been the issue at all. It's simply a change of assumptions. We have it here from an Old Testament scholar. It's just a change of assumptions that have taken place. There's no new new data, nothing significant. There's no new discoveries. It's a change of assumptions. It's uh, a, a wider acceptance, even, of evolutionary theory. And just this, this theorem that these early chapters of Genesis are uh, nothing more than uh, the Jewish um, Hebrew evolutionary response to the culture's around them. And so at what point do we draw the line? James Orr said it like this, and I quote, let one assume and hold fast by the idea that there has really has been a, a great scheme of historical revelation extending through successive dispensations and culminating in the incarnation in Christ Jesus. And many things will appear natural and fitting as parts of such a scheme, which otherwise would be rejected as incredible or be taken account of only to be explained away. In other words, if we detach scriptural teaching and theology from its historical foundations, then we lose the authority of Scripture because the theology flows out of the history. That is the beauty of the Bible, that we're not just talking about abstract theological ideas. We're not just postulating what what our world um, is like. We're talking about God stepping into history and revealing. Uh, we're talking about the God who created the universe revealing himself to his creation. How did he reveal himself? Through history. Our worldview, our belief system, is based on real events that happened in real history. And when we lose the history, the theology might as well go out the window. And the point here that I want to bring this around to is this has everything to do with the fall. Why do you think that the very first attack on the Bible is, it, it was uh, Satan questioning the very word of God? And that's what led Eve to take of the fruit. Why do you think today the attack is on those first chapters of the Bible? It's clear to me. And we can't just brush this off. And we can't just say, Jesus, 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 kumbaya. Guess what? John 1 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Word was God, and the Word was with God. Goes on to say that without him was not anything made that was made. And later on, of course, he became uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory um, of the Father as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the point I want to make there is this Jesus was there in the beginning. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. How we view this issue has everything to do with how we view Christ. It has everything to do with why Christ stepped into the world. And it's based on this historical foundation of the fall that we must not lose at all costs. Here's what Scripture says. I want to read this lengthy passage from Romans 5 where Paul wrote on uh, basically the fall of man. This is this is where we see the clearest representation of, of what really happened at the fall of man and who all it affected. Uh, I just want to read this to you, this, this passage of Scripture. Starting at Romans 5 in chapter 12, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no 
law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, until the law, death reigned. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who is the figure of him who was to come? But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, the offense of one, that's history, through the offense of one that actually happened, many be dead. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, real history, no distinction made, hath abounded unto many. We're at verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's obedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We can say amen right there. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what a strain it would be to try to place an allegorical interpretation on those words or to try to make the theology that is just absolutely dripping from those words to rest on a foundation of myth, or to rest on a foundation of allegory, or worse still, to rest on a foundation of falsehood. If the Bible didn't get the beginning right, then Paul did not get that right. If you ask many today, that's the argument. We know that the fall didn't happen as described in the Bible because we know that evolutionary theory is true. Therefore, and this has been told to me before, I've I've had many conversations along these lines, therefore Paul was wrong. So now we allegorize away the first chapters of Genesis, and we say that Paul was wrong. But yet, I'm not referring to atheists who hold this view. I'm referring to Christians. There are Christians who hold this view. And so, they uh, might argue something like, uh, perhaps Paul was just relaying the Jewish um, teaching, the Jewish majority opinion of that day. Now, uh Croteau and, and, and Naylor comment on this in Searching for Adam, and I'm going to bring that out. I, I, I want to give you this. But I also want to make an important distinction first here. Do you think there might have been a good reason that that was the Jewish teaching of the day? It could be because it's been passed down through their generations as true history. As true history. Now, Could they have all been wrong? Well, I suppose. But I don't think so. Not based on what we know about the Bible and based on the way that they have held these views since they've been... I mean, these guys, we have this presupposition, and it's all circular reasoning, really. Reasoning. Because we have this presupposition that uh, in the beginning were the brutes. 
Isn't that right? But we talked about that going through our Searching for Adam series. It turns out if we look at technology, there's technology from days past that we cannot replicate even today. We all have the computing power in our pockets more than it took to go to the moon in 1969, and yet today we cannot replicate some of the technology that we have uncovered. So don't tell me that in the beginning we're the brutes. That's ridiculous. That's an assumption that we're placing on the text. And and, and people just say that, well, the, the ancient Jews were too, too dumb to understand evolution theory or something like that. Well, they didn't need to understand all of that because that's not the true history of the world. It's real simple. They didn't have to understand all the scientific implications that we could determine today from looking at the history. They just needed to know the history. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. All they had to do was believe God. Now today, that's all we have to do as well. And it'll be counted to us for righteousness. We have faith in God. Our technology has advanced today in certain ways such that we are able to scientifically test things. And we are able to to look at what we know to be the true history of the world and figure out if there is um, a way of understanding the world scientifically that aligns with that. And that's exactly what we do as creation scientists. We, we look at what actually happened in history and we try to understand the world scientifically from that standpoint. All right? It's not that hard. And that's all we do. So uh, just understand that just because Jewish Paul was going off of what might have been the majority uh, Jewish interpretation, if that is the case, then who cares? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It just simply confirms that that is what they have taught. And they weren't dumb. They were actually much smarter people than we were, I think. In many cases, they were they were ve- they were very smart people, um. So we need to uh, go into it assuming that they would be able to understand exactly what God has told them. Now, Crutero, uh, excuse me, and Naylor comment on this in looking at Paul's interpretation in particular in light of Jewish interpretation at the time. Uh, the lack of unanimity among Jewish authors actually strengthens the argument that Paul and the other New Testament authors understood Adam as a historical person. Paul's interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 was an interpretation available in his day, but was not the only interpretation of Genesis. In other words, given the choice of interpreting Adam as historical or non-historical, Paul interprets Adam as a historical person, responsible for the entrance of sin and death into the world. Possibly one of the... Um, easiest contrasting views to see is those of Philo of Alexandria. Um, and I'm not quoting, uh, quote ended on the word world there, but um, he also points out earlier, in, uh, or they point out earlier in their writing in that chapter that Philo of Alexandria was probably one of the easiest uh, examples to see. Philo uh, himself did not believe in a literal genesis. And much of the Alexandrian school actually did not. So, um, food for thought there, but, but the point being made here is that Paul did not have to stick to one interpretation. Paul, as an inspired writer of the Bible, could have used another interpretation had another interpretation been the right one. But again, uh, this mistake happens if using magisterial use of today's science to call the scriptures into question. Uh, rather than a ministerial use. In other words, allowing our science to uh, help us to understand things in the Scripture um, rather than to dictate how we interpret things in the Scripture. And uh, so the appeal I want to make to you here on this first point is just that a historical fall is necessary to the veracity of Scripture. I think we're going to have to realize this. All right, now secondly, I want to talk about quickly the impact of the fall, the impact of the fall, Uh, and this specifically deals with sin. Look, we all know that something is wrong with the world. We all get this. Um, there, 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 we could, we could, we could read off quotes from philosophers all day. We're going to read a few. All right, but, but understand that this is not limited this understanding of the brokenness in the world is not limited to the Christian understanding. Uh, 
I think the Christian understanding, and this is the point of this lesson, I think the Christian understanding has the best answer. The Christian worldview has the best answer to the so-called problems of evil and suffering and pain. But only the Christian worldview as presented by the Bible. Seems important, but a lot of times uh, we leave the plain sense of Scripture and the plain teaching of the Bible on this issue. I, I don't know why. I, I, I don't. I really don't know why. I don't know if it's for academic acceptance. I, I really don't know why, and I'm not going to speculate on that because that's not my job. I'm, I, I don't evaluate other people's hearts. That's not my job. That's God's job. I just want to point out that somehow we've we've made this disconnection and we've become okay with it, and and I'm not okay with it. And so that's why we're talking about it. Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist, and uh, one of the four horsemen uh, of the new atheist, if you're familiar with that term, and he said this, and this was, I believe it was in a debate with an old earth creationist. This is what he said. Let's say that the consensus is that our species, being the higher primates, homo sapiens, uh, has been on the planet for at least 100,000 years, maybe more. In order to be a Christian, you have to believe that for 98,000 years, our species suffered and died, most of its children dying in childbirth, most other people having a life expectancy of about 25 years, famine, struggle, bitterness, war, suffering, misery, and all of that for 98,000 years. Heaven watches this with complete indifference, and then 2,000 years ago thinks, that's enough of that, it's time to intervene. And the best way to do this would be by condemning someone to a human sacrifice somewhere in the less literate parts of the Middle East. This is nonsense. It can't be believed by a thinking person. And thus is the error, I think, of trying to understand the wide context of Scripture and downplaying the fall as presented in the Bible. Again, when we try to start meshing biblical timelines and the biblical history of humanity. When we try to start meshing that with the secular interpretation of that same time in humanity, there are going to be way more conflicts than we could reasonably resolve. I don't find any merit for it in Scripture. Certainly there are limits I think the genealogies are closed, but even on an open genealogy view, there are limits. And I just can't get to 100,000 years, but that seems to be one of the greatest um, the greatest consensus of, script, uh, of Christian scholars who does not accept a young age view. And I think there are tremendous implications of that. And basically, what it comes down to, what Hitchens fails to account for here is that there was no sin and death in the world prior to the fall of man. There's only a few thousand years separated between the time of Christ and the time of Adam. And in that time, a very specific plan was set in place and was and was unfolding. And as you read your Bible, you see Christ really starting Genesis 3.15 and all the way throughout. You, now that we have that revelation, we can see things all through there. All right, but, but, but again, this does not make sense because it conflicts. If we try to extend these ages out, then we have to go with, um, essentially, even though I'm not talking about Christians who are evolutionists necessarily. Of course, in, in some ways we are, but um, even if you're not an evolutionist um, necessarily, when you bring in those timelines into the Bible, you're going to have to kind of go with the same kind of human history, aren't you? that Darwinist claim to be true. And if you do that, then uh, you've got tremendous issues such that uh, Christopher Hitchens pointed out here. Kokel, uh, Greg Kokel, summarizes evil and sin this way in his book, The Story of Reality. I, I just love his sum summation of this. He says, man is beautiful, but man is broken. There simply is no getting around it. Something has gone deeply wrong with us. And the problem is not in our education or in our pocketbooks or in our cultural context or in our genes. We're not the victims. We are the victimizers. The evil in the world is not out there. It's in us. But simply, we are guilty and we know it. It's a very small step from feeling guilty to realizing that we feel guilty because we are guilty. 
And that is precisely what the story tells us. We're broken, true enough, but we're not simply malfunctioning. We're not machines that need to be fixed. We're transgressors who need to be forgiven. We've not merely made mistakes like getting our sums wrong when balancing accounts. We have sinned, and with sin comes guilt, and with guilt comes punishment. The sin must be answered for. It must be paid for in some way, atoned for, if you will. Of course, you realize the argument that he is is developing there. But does this view make sense, this carefully sketched out view? Does it make sense without Adam and Eve and the plain meaning of the fall? How do we account for this? Taking what we saw from Hitchens' comment here, and then, of course, what we just saw from Kokel there, We've got issues if we don't believe in the doctrine of the fall as presented in Scripture that God presented us and created us in a very good Tov Mehod creation. And I'm not going to um, regurgitate those arguments. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But understanding the context of the fall here and the context that it places on the problem of evil when we're responding to things like this is tremendously important. Now, we discussed in the past couple weeks um, how the plain meaning of Scripture clearly demonstrates a link between animal death and Christ's sacrifice, and also between animal death and Adam's fall. These things are inseparably linked, and this is kind of where I want to bring it back around to the importance of, uh, of the young age interpretation on this. There is a link between animal death and Christ's death, as we saw in Hebrews, but as we see right after the fall happens in the killing of the animal so that Adam and Eve can have skins, there is an inseparable link between animal death and Adam's fall. And the only coherent explanation of this is that no death or sin was present in the world prior to that point. And remember Romans 5.12. Sin entered the world, and death by sin. Yes, it's talking in the context of human life, because then it says, and so death passed upon all men. But still, the first part of the verse, sin entered the world, death by sin, taking with what we saw about Genesis 1, 29 and 30. The original creation was vegetation, and the first mention of animal death in the Bible is immediately after the fall. These things are 100% linked. But it gets a little worse than that. Wise offers this, Kurt Wise in his book, Faith, Form, and Time. He says, Scripture suggests that this curse was applied to the entire universe. Now we're not just talking about man and the animals. We're talking about the the whole earth and the entire universe. He continues here, just like humans, for example, Isaiah 50, verse 9, the heaven and the earth wax old like a garment. Psalm 102, 26, Isaiah 51, 6, and Hebrews 1, 10, and 11. Just like humans, Romans 8.23, the entire creation is under the bondage of corruption, and it groaneth and travaileth in pain, Romans 8.21-22. But we are told that it was not initially created that way. Sometime after the creation, it was made subject to vanity, Romans 8.20. It was cursed and subjected to corruption, suffering, and aging. Yet this was done by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Romans 8.20 It was done so the aged garments of man, Romans 8.23, and the entire universe, Romans 8.19, could be changed. Psalm 102.26 and Hebrews 1.12 God did something in response to the fall of man to cause the entire universe to age, to deteriorate, and fall agonizingly short of the perfect reflection of God it was created to achieve, though he did it for his own higher redemptive reasons. Wise is helpful here concerning the, the, the link, the specific linkage of animal death as well. He says, with animal death being a consequence of the sin of man, the death of any animal stands as a strong reminder of the significance of man's sin. Even the death of a pet tends to be traumatic, and there's good reason for this. More than emotional trauma is associated with the death of an animal, there is also spiritual trauma, as the animal's death reminds us of our own depravity. In other theistic origins models, animal death preceded man's sin and is thus part of God's mode of creation. The young age creation model for the origin of death is more consistent with a good and merciful 
God. And I agree with Dr. Wise there. And I think the way that he has laid out the universal effects of the curse in that quote I gave you a, a, a minute ago, uh, intertwining the scripture in that quote was, was brilliant. And I really think it perfectly sums up if the creation, the creature, which is the same word as creation, if you look in the Greek there, was subject, made subject to vanity. It's in the bondage of corruption. It, uh, it groaneth and travaileth in pain, and it is going to be delivered from that bondage. Then that means it had to come into that bondage. And when did that happen? The Bible teaches it happens at the fall of man. There is no scriptural reason at all to think that the Garden of Eden was some kind of separate thing, uh, some part of the creation that was subject to different rules than the rest of the creation. There's no nothing that we get from looking at the text that says that animals didn't die uh, only in the Garden of Eden and that animals died everywhere in the rest of the world. There is none of that. We simply, in this case, must believe God. Now, we talked about that. In the past couple weeks, we talked about how to understand. There's no contradiction at all in understanding that at one time animals were vegetarian. No problems at all. So if there's no problems at all, scientifically, with understanding this, to me, all the more reason to just accept it, how the Bible lays it out. If we lose the fall, we lose a reasonable justification for suffering and death of any kind, on the Christian worldview. This brings me here to my final point, and that is the implications of the fall, the implications of the fall, and specifically the implications on defending Christianity. Ken Ham's got a new book out called Gospel Reset, and I like this quote from it. He says this, Many Christians are guilty of only preaching part of the gospel, specifically the power and hope of the gospel. But when you preach the power and hope of the gospel, you're assuming the foundation has already been laid. This is a faulty assumption, especially in our post-Christian, godless culture. In this current moral climate, we can never assume that people possess a foundational knowledge concerning creation, sin, and death. When you hear preachers talk about the gospel, you mostly hear the walls and the roof of the gospel. You will hear them preach that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and was raised from the dead. People will be challenged to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But do the generations we are preaching to today really understand what sin is? And why there is death in the world? And who Jesus is? I don't think so. It's like being told by a doctor that you need an operation but he has yet to reveal what's wrong with you or why you need it. In generations past, most had a basic understanding of sin and their sinful condition before God, but this is no longer true for upcoming younger generations. Close quote. And here's the fact. He's, he's trading on a principle found clearly in Scripture in Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If we lack the foundational context brought in by the sin uh, and death into the world that the Bible teaches about the fall of man that happened around 6,000 or so years ago, if we lose that, we lose the very foundation that the gospel is built upon. And again, I really, I, I don't speak strongly about this to make anybody mad. I... Um, I realize, as I've said in days past, that we have those who listen to this podcast who don't agree with my views. And the purpose, the main purpose of this podcast is not even to discuss when we disagree with other Christians. But This is a series that is in that direction. Uh, there are going to be times when we have points of contention between us and the other views, and we just have to deal with them. I'm not mad at anybody. I don't think you're a heretic for accepting views contrary to mine, and I want to be persuasive as I present these views. Uh, it's not necessarily my aim to convert anybody, but if that's what ends up happening, then good. And, and it's because I'm, I'm truly trying to, to give the wide context here and to really show 
how scripture requires this view. And it's, it's not just because that's my view. It's not because it's, you know, I don't think it's as a, you know, well, that's just your interpretation kind of issue. I really don't. I really think this is what the Bible very clearly teaches. And I really think it's how um, other Bible writers interpreted the chapters uh, in question here, which, you know, let's be honest, we're looking at these early chapters of Genesis. That's where the fall is. If we look how writers of the rest of the Bible interpret it, I think that's where we get our hermeneutic from. That's why I opened with that. And if they understood it as history, and if the theology that they developed was based on the history, then I think we should too. Look, uh, we're wrapping up here. Philosophical arguments are helpful. Don't get me wrong. The moral argument. We talked about that last week or, or, or the week before. Uh, I use that. I honestly think that ethics, moral values and duties, are meaningless if not grounded in God. It's a philosophical term. but uh, So these arguments are helpful. But reality, the real story of the world, is the foundation of our worldview. And that's what counts. That's what counts. And there's a reason why simply just telling the old, old story, Jesus and his love, as the songwriter put it, has worked for so long. It's because they've had this foundation. But now, as Ken Ham so rightfully pointed out in that quote I read to you, the foundations are leaving. Young people are growing up and not understanding the foundation. And this becomes problematic. Yes, there are people who leave or who claim to leave the church because they can't believe a young age view of creation and that's all they've been taught. And so there are those who come in and try to say, well, look, you don't have to believe a young age view. You can believe other views. And that's true. You can be a Christian and believe other views. But can we just be honest? Nobody leaves the faith because of a young earth they they might say that I mean that might be an issue that is part of it that, that drove them out but ultimately it's because this is what God has plainly said in his word and they just reject God it's that simple we, we don't have to sugarcoat it Jesus told us thousands of years ago that we were going to expect this men love darkness rather than light. And for the for thousands of years, the historic Christian response to the problem of evil has been this issue, has been that of Adam's fall. And if we allow death before the fall, then we destroy this foundation of a perfect beginning as Christians have taught for the past few millennia. Now, in virtue of this, we actually make God responsible for the horrid suffering and death present in the world. Is that right? We saw from Hitchens. Of course, uh, we've seen through the years uh, Darwin's the death of Darwin's daughter and also Charles Templeton. One of Charles Templeton's main reason for leaving the faith, if you don't know, he was a contemporary of Billy Graham. Animal death and suffering is one of the main reasons Templeton left the faith. The creation itself here is clearly marred. That's natural evil. And the created order is also clearly marred. And that's moral evil. We, we can uh, ground morality in God philosophically, and I believe we should. But ultimately, if the world he created was subject to vanity, as we saw in Romans 8.20, and the creation was in bondage, Romans 8.21, prior to man's sin, then we can't point to the fall reasonably as an apologetic for natural and moral evil, can we? And that's the issue. I want to close with a helpful quote here from theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem. Ironically, some of the quotes I've given you here today have been some really great quotes in support of our view. I haven't mentioned this on purpose, but they've old earth creationists, some of them. And that's because this view is so foundational um, that even when it contradicts their what they claim to be true, they realize the importance of the apologetic to the story, and there's inconsistency there, and uh, you know it's not really my job to call them out on that, but but I do want to point that out to you. This is a a clear indication we're getting ready to see, but Dr. Wayne Gurdon put it so carefully and so clearly here. I think it's really helpful. He he says this: What is at stake? He's the context is evolution. Okay, he says what is at stake? A lot. 
the truthfulness of the three foundational chapters of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. Belief in the unity of the human race. Belief in the ontological uniqueness of human beings among all God's creatures. Belief in the special creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God. Belief in the parallel between condemnation through representation by Adam and salvation through representation by Christ. Belief in the goodness of God's original creation. Belief that suffering and death today are the result of sin and not a part of God's original creation. And belief that natural disasters today are the result of the fall and not part of God's original creation. That's what's at stake here. If we lose the historic biblical teaching and understanding on this issue, we lose the entire foundation of the gospel, of, 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 of the fall, of the need for a Savior, and ultimately we lose our defense. We give up our defense before we even start because we don't understand how the theology is so deeply connected to the history. So today, as you think about that, I just want you to consider this. If you're somebody who agrees with my views on this, then perhaps a prayer I could offer for you is that you would communicate this with others in a graceful way. I can't tell you how it grieves my heart, and I assure you how it grieves the heart of God, to see how some young age creationists have treated others on this issue. I get it. I'm passionate about this. I want us to hold a high view of Scripture. I want us to hold the highest view of Scripture. I don't want to just throw the Bible out of our conversations. I don't want us to just lay the creation account aside because it's not scientifically relevant in the mainstream. I... I I get it. I understand the importance of it. But at the same time, let's make sure that we're operating with grace. Again, when I present these contrary views, you know, I, 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 I want to be seen as somebody who presents this issue with grace. I want to stand on it humbly. I want to say, look, this is just not my interpretation. I don't want you to just listen to me. I want you to read the Bible carefully and see how others in the Bible treated these issues I don't want you to just take my word for it, but 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 as a, as a young age creationist, if you're listening, what I want you to take away from this is that you need to respond better. If you want to talk to other people about these views, that's fine, but this is an issue that ends up getting so heated so quickly, and there's no reason for it. We can talk about these issues in a graceful way, and I know because I've done it, and I've seen others do it. We can talk in a way that others will take us seriously because... They will see our Christian attitude and character in the mix. And then if you're listening uh, today as somebody who disagrees with the view I've presented here, as I know some of you do, then I pray you'll just consider maybe reading your Bible through with uh, an understanding that you're really trying to, to get a, a thorough understanding of this, of this view. And just look at it this way. Maybe you were raised in a church where this was never the hermeneutic that you were taught to read with, or or maybe this was not the view that you were raised believing. I don't know what the case may be. But try to get an appreciation and a sense of how important it is to Christian doctrine, to Christian scripture, to really uh, understanding the fall of man and not having to explain things away. I mean, can we just level here we talked about this a week or two ago but how could we possibly as one i'm not going to repeat the name but as one leading proponent of an alternate view to mine how can you possibly look at genesis 129 i encourage you to take out your bible right now and read it how can you possibly look at genesis 129 and affirm the doctrine that there was no human death before creation and then read Genesis 30, the next verse, but deny the doctrine that there was no animal death before creation. It, it, if you can do that consistently, please reach out to me and show me how. I would love to know. Honestly, I just don't think you can do it. And so it might not be scientifically relevant. 
It might not make you popular. You might not get invited to speak on a college campus one day. And guess what? Somebody might even laugh at you. But you know what? Let God be true and let every man be a liar. It's just believe in God and it will be counted to you for righteousness. I had rather be right with God. I had rather be trusting in the promises God has given me than to lend one ounce of credence to sinful man. And so if you're listening today and, and you disagree with my view, I just I pray that you would look at it that way. You would try to read the Bible through this lens. And hopefully you'll see, uh, as, 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 as I think many others do, hopefully you'll see how important that this view of Scripture is to, to understanding the wider context of Christianity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbly and out of a love and appreciation for your word and for your revelation to us. Lord, you didn't have to step into, into human history. You didn't have to intervene with our affairs, but you did. And Lord, help us just to be followers of you and servants of you who simply take your word on the matter. Help us to understand what a proper view of the fall means for the authority of Scripture. Help us to understand what a proper view of the fall means for the suffering and death we find present in the world today. And most of all, help us to to gain an understanding and appreciation of how getting this right will allow us to properly and accurately and faithfully defend the faith that you have so graciously offered to us. Thank you for your goodness and and grace and for your mercy this week as we walk through our lives, Lord, uh, uncertain of what's going to happen in days ahead, but knowing in whom we have believed and knowing that you're able to keep us, Lord, um, and reserve us and save us from our sins and save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for joining me today on the Creation Academy. We'll see you here, same time, same place, next week. I don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but uh, but it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. And probably be a little bit more scientific uh, than theological. All right. So we'll see you next time, same, same, uh, same time, same place. Uh, thank you so much. Bye-bye.